Hello, everyone. Hey. Welcome back to the Secret Syllabus podcast. The Secret Syllabus is a production of the Female Quotient and iHeartRadio and co-produced by the Female Quotient and Wonder Media Network. I'm Katie Tracy. And I'm Hannah Ashton. This episode is about love and relationships in college. However you define those words, it'll be really fun too because Hannah and I have pretty different experiences and by that I mean I have never had a boyfriend and Hannah is in a long-term relationship. So Hannah, did you think about romantic relationships before coming to college? Yes. Well, it's a little bit different for me because the two people I've dated actually have been from my hometown. So I've never met someone on campus or in my college city um, and that that I've gotten into a relationship with. Um, but I know that's that's different for a lot of a lot of uh, girls and guys who come to college and who are looking for a relationship while they're here in college. This year, I was actually introduced to a mutual friend over the summer, and we started talking, and that's my boyfriend now. We started dating before I headed back to school. But before then, um, during my sophomore year, I was single for over a year. So I don't feel like looking for a relationship is usually my top priority uh, while at college. But what about you, Katie? Yeah, me neither. It wasn't my priority either. I do feel there is this unspoken pressure and also excitement around it. I remember my first year at Cornell, so many new couples were forming in the first week of college. And I was like, wait, didn't y'all just meet each other a week ago? That's so funny. I'm sure that a lot of people going in are ready to meet new people. And part of that is also meeting new people to date. But I'm curious if you were nervous at all about meeting new people, especially coming from out of the country. Yes, that is such a good question because there were many relationships that were new to me. So the first was just friendship. And that was something I was very worried about because before going to college, I didn't know anybody from the school. It was also my first time living in America as an international student. So I was extra nervous. Spoiler though, every first year is nervous about making friends, so don't worry about it. And as for relationships, not really. It has come very naturally in my experience with people asking you out or going on date nights with their fraternities. Mm -hmm. For friendship-wise, I actually went in with one of my good friends from my hometown. We were roommates. And so I felt a lot of security in having her and being able to go to social functions with her. And so I feel like that helped me be less nervous because I was meeting new people while already having a friend right beside me. But I know that it can be very intimidating for people going into a campus where they've maybe only visited with their parents on a college tour. Um, But I'm thankful that a lot of campuses are aware of this and they're always putting together social events to kind of help with that. I agree. I just threw myself in all the social events that first, you know, orientation week. You know, things have changed a bit, though, since then. How do you feel about dating during COVID? Yes. So from the dating perspective, the actual dates you can go on are limited. You know, I used to love going to the movies and going to concerts on dates. But instead, my boyfriend and I are just trying to find ways to be creative. Um, We like being outside since the weather has been great. We go on walks, we'll go play tennis or, you know, just order takeout and watch movies. Always good too. But from my single friends perspectives, I know that dating to meet new people has been really tough. Like you really aren't meeting new people. You aren't being introduced to new people on your campus, new people in your city through social events, and the whole online dating scene is just awkward. So I know for many, this was not the dating scene they were expecting for this year. Plus one on that, I relate. It's also really challenging to read people and their body language because you only see their head and maybe half of their arm occasionally when they're doing hand gestures. But for our interview today, we will find great answers to all our questions. 
I am so excited for our guest. She is Shan Boudram. Shan Boudram is a sexologist and intimacy educator who teaches people how to be more confident. She is a best-selling author of The Game of Desire and a well-known host of dating shows, including MTV's Guide to Sex and Queeby's Sexology with Shan Boudram. Hey, Shan. Welcome to the show. We can't wait to bring your knowledge and expertise on all things sex and relationships to our listeners. To start, could you share with us where you're from and what your title, Sexologist, is all about? Yes, I'm actually from Toronto, Canada. I currently live in Los Angeles, but I am desperately missing home right now. I haven't been back all of 2020, which is really, really sad and scary to say. Sexologist is the study of sex as it relates to biology, psychology, criminology, sociology, etc. A sexologist can show up in a variety of fields, kind of like nutritionists can, but I am a public-facing sex educator, so I don't do any one-to-one work or research work. The job that I have chosen and that I always knew I was meant for was to bring scholastic information that can be kind of dry and boring around sex and add some lube to it, make it fun, and then deliver it to the public. My goal is to get the average person invested in their sex and intimacy education. You once said that sex sells, but sex education does not. Can you tell us about what your sex ed experience was like and how that shaped you to become an educator in this space? Yeah, I would love to hear from both of you what your sex education was like, because it feels like sex ed is the longest running mutual joke. Like your grandma can laugh about how ridiculous it was, your great grandma, you can laugh about it. The way it's looking right now, your kids are going to laugh about it. It is laughable. It's dismal. You know, if anything in life that it plays a massive role in who you're going to be and how it's going to shape your world that you only spend two weeks on, that's ridiculous. We're all sexual beings, no matter how we decide to interact with that. And we're given such limited information to have a successful go at this area of our life. I always liken it to almost like imagine if you never went to school, you never got an education, you didn't get any of the basic skills. And then at 18 years old, they were like, okay, choose whatever job you want to be. And now all of a sudden you're a surgeon and you've learned nothing about it except for like a couple of weeks of stuff and two YouTube videos. And it's your job to make sure someone's heart doesn't fail on the table. That's what really happens with sex and relationships. We give such limited information and we shove people out there and say, go out there and good luck to you. And we wonder why it's so catastrophic for so many people. So my inspiration into this space was really my own teen sex life. It was me being the surgeon going out there, trying my hand at it, doing incredibly terrible and thinking, okay, either one of two things, either this is a very awful place in life that I have no business interacting with, or I don't have the information and tools to interact with it in a successful, healthy way. So let me try to see if I can educate myself first to make a difference. And if that doesn't work, then I'm going to become a nun. Um, obviously that didn't work that that way because I'm not a nun. So here we are today. I love how you said it's a running joke because for me, what I remember was I think my freshman year of high school. So I was 14 and it was two lessons, like two hour lessons. It was one week and it was just mainly about like women's periods and how to take care of yourself and hygiene and very little about actually um, sex education. And I think that also comes from living in a very conservative area and city, and it just not being a topic that most people want to talk about. But what was your experience, Katie? 
Yeah, I remember my first time learning about this was in eighth grade. It was a wellness class. And I remember one time our teacher, you know, like pulled out a condom and everybody was just like, what is this? And they were kind of joking. They were like, one of my friends actually gave it to me and they were like, it's candy, try it. And I had no idea what it was. Like I might've really put my mouth in it if I had not known. Yeah, it's it was interesting. That's funny. And how old were you then? And you'd never seen a condom before? I had not. Yeah, I think I was maybe like 11. But to be fair, I think the Philippines is a pretty conservative country. As a woman of color in this space, how have you defined your voice and used it to differentiate yourself? Yeah, I think it's a really big question because especially when I first began, there was nobody who looked like me who was standing on a soapbox to spread information. And for a long time, that can make you feel unworthy because you never walk into rooms and feel welcome. People never automatically assume your authority. You have to always constantly fight for it. But those were actually evidences to me that I truly needed to be here. And in all honesty, I don't know how I did this, but I never tried to be something that I wasn't. I never tried to be more scholastic, more uptight, more what the traditional sex educators were because I just acknowledged that those are not the people that I was personally drawn to. And even when I had done my research at 19 years old to try to educate myself, as much as I did find value in the content, the context of how it was delivered wasn't appealing to me. One of the things that really stuck with me when I was thinking about my sex education is I was really heavily influenced by porn, by fiction books, and by movies because they were just so interesting. Like that's to the point that you were making, Katie, where I was saying that sex sells, but sex that does not. Everything that utilizes sex as a tool for telling a story or selling a product uses interesting people and salacious storylines. And it's something that you actually want to participate in. But sex ed is facts and it's faceless and it's dry and it's monotonous. Sex ed in many ways is bad sex. So how was it that I could incorporate the things that were attractive to me and add some truth to it? And that I knew was my unique space and my unique voice and my multiculturalism was a big part of how I wanted my delivery to stand out. And it's great you started so young too, because a lot of our listeners are in that 19 to 20 year old range. And it just shows that you can find what you're passionate about and have a voice and that can grow into a career no matter what age you start. What age did, did both of you know that this is what you wanted to do? I started creating content really young, but got into it and started looking at job opportunities through sponsorships at around 13 or 14. Same here. I started this when I was 13 and Hannah and I had actually met each other online when we were that young too. You know, it took us six years. We're both 19 and 20 right now to actually reunite and make this podcast. I think it's amazing. I think that you're always going to look back at this time in your life when you were this brave and be like, wow. Like I draw inspiration from my 19-year-old self all the time because she had no answers, but only had conviction. And she had no guarantee that any of this would work out. And there was so much risk involved, not just risk of, of time and risk of failure, but risk of judgment. She really threw herself into that. On the note of challenging tradition, actually, we'd like to dive into the Gen Z culture of dating. What do you think makes our generation's approach different from previous ones? I think... Obviously, dating apps make the culture extremely different because it's still a very new and emerging field. The beauty of dating apps is everybody on there is making an intention to say, I want to meet somebody. So I think that could be used for good in many ways because you're like, oh, wow, like the accessibility is there and the awkwardness of like, do you like me or do you not? Do you want to go to the, like, the spring formal or not? 
is removed in many ways because it's either they swiped on you or they didn't. But I think the downside of that is not learning how to flirt in person, not learning how to test people out before you put yourself in a position where there's any level of commitment there. So I I can see that it's vastly different in many ways and some for the better and some for the worse. I know what happens a lot of times on these dating apps is ghosting. And you talk about this in your book, The Game of Desire. Why do you think our generation is so quick to ghost and not take any responsibility? Yeah, I think that ghosting is seen as an indirect breakup. When you date in person, there is some sense of shared accountability. So if, you know, Katie met somebody at a party and they both know the person who threw the party, ghosting's a little harder because you've got somebody in the middle. Whereas in on dating apps, there's this beyond that six degrees of separation. There's no accountability partners between you and this other person. So it's very easy to think that cutting ties and not saying anything is the best route, especially since the chances of seeing each other again is pretty low. And I think a lot of people think that it's better that people prefer for them to do it that way. Also too, it's a way of keeping the option open. So if I am seeing somebody, but maybe I'm seeing somebody else, or perhaps I'm going through a busy, whatever my excuse is for not wanting to pursue the relationship at this time, if I ghost, I never technically close the loop, which leaves a potential for me to come back in four months and be like, hey, how are you? But going back to the fact that we don't get sex or intimacy education, we don't necessarily get taught how to date or how to connect. Closing the feedback loop is very detrimental to people. It becomes very difficult to learn what you're doing that is off-putting or who you're attracting that may not necessarily be the right fit for you. And so if people aren't revealing their reasons for wanting to dissolve the connection, then you learn nothing from it. And it was a waste of time for everybody. So we have to make a commitment, I think, to each other to want to help each other get better at this space that we have such limited information on how to do so. Do you have any tips then for how to date online, especially during COVID when that's the new normal? I think a lot of people make the mistake of being like, I want to be in a relationship. And that's what happens after So what's the very next step? So my very next thing that I want from this lifetime is I want to get into a connection that actually makes me feel good. I want to be around somebody who has a similar hobby to me. I want to be around somebody who helps hold me accountable because I'm starting this new podcast, whatever it is. Like, So getting really clear about what your next intention is for a partner, how could romantic relationship in any capacity enhance your life? And making sure you're looking for that when you're looking. And then breaking that down into traits and qualities that you think could bring out the best in you right now. This is an area in life where everyone has been told, don't worry about it. Don't focus on it too much. Don't stress. Just be yourself. Just let it happen. Just relax. That's just not the average person's story. Most people, if you want to see progress, you have to have a process. You have to invest in the time and energy. You have to educate yourself to get skilled or have great results in anything. There is a very specific process to do so. And so if you're frustrated with the results you're getting in dating and love, maybe it's time to throw out that old adage that you're not supposed to put energy towards controlling what the result is. I love how you are reaching a demographic of women who want more step-by-step guidelines because the world of dating is so different when you're especially starting out in college, like you're meeting all these brand new people. And so I'd love to hear if you have any advice for how college students can feel a little bit less nervous going on virtual dates or in person once the time allows. Yeah, I think anything that you do that you feel nervous about is because you don't do it enough. 
anything that you don't do frequently and you don't put yourself in that realm to do is going to feel uncomfortable and unnatural to you. My five steps in my book, just loosely, are to know. First, you have to know yourself. Secondly, you have to try to change the things that you've learned about yourself, that knowing process you know are self-sabotaging qualities. Third, you have to be in a position where you're willing to learn new things. So trying to pick up the information that you didn't have the luxury of getting growing up. And then fourth, you have to practice. And that doesn't look like failing at 40 first dates. Practicing could just mean trying out being a bit more flirty in your everyday interactions. Practicing could be uh, engaging in chats a little longer on dating apps just so you could try out different conversation starters. So if you feel uncomfortable doing anything, if you feel nervous when the stakes are high, you have to look for lower stake scenario where you can express that part of yourself. And that way when it actually matters, it almost feels like second nature to you. But rest assured, the more that you do something, the better that you're going to get at that. And uh, that is so true, not just for hockey. It's also true for sex, love and dating. Yeah, I think just listening to you has just made me so much more excited. I think what you've done with the approach to dating is, you know, take this like framework that applies to so many things and you applied it to dating and made it seem so much more approachable. So what advice do you have for incoming first year students on hookup culture in college? Focus less on the kinds of relationships that you want and focus more on the kinds of experiences that are going to make this year or this time in your life meaningful. And that might end up leading you to a relationship. And if it doesn't, at least you would have known that you invited the kind of interaction that was going to be positive to you into your world. So the more small and direct and tangible your goals can be, not things that you want to accomplish at the end of year four, what is the goal that you want in the next week, in the next two weeks? Okay, in the first week of school, I want to talk to one person I find attractive. I want to introduce myself to two people who I would feel too scared to talk to and strike up a conversation with them. If I do that and I feel good about the interaction, now I want to hang out with that person. And if I do that and I feel bad about the interaction, now I want to talk to two more people. So the more you can really simplify and keep your goals, not just for school, but for your intimate life, really tangible and direct and really focus on what would bring out the best in me this year? What am I going to look back on in 15 years and say like, wow, like I really had a very enjoyable time during that space in my life. I think only you can really answer that question. That's great to keep in mind for anyone in school or out of school, just those questions. So I'm sure at the same time that many women want to have sex, some don't. And when we associate sexual empowerment with women empowerment, it can make those not interested in sex feel like they're almost betraying their women empowerment values. And so I'd love for you to talk about any advice you have for women who don't want to engage in hookup culture, but maybe feel pressured to. Not having sex is empowering. That's the whole point of empowerment. It's to give you the power. So honoring empowerment is really honoring yourself. The second that you are trying to fit into the mold, that's the same thing as suppression, as regression. A lot of times, though, trying to force yourself to live an ideal of a life that is quote-unquote empowered but not true to yourself is really no different than what was happening 100 years ago. 
So you are betraying the word empowerment if you are trying to become anything other than what authentically brings out the best in yourself. And if you know that sex is not a priority for you or it goes against your priorities, it's not an interest right now, or the quality of sexual experiences that are available to you would not actually bring you pleasure, enjoyment, and self-fulfillment, and you're opting out, that's really, really powerful. I love all that you just said. This question is a bit more serious, but I think it's super important to address. Sometimes when women face sexual assault, they are criticized for wearing clothes that are, quote, too revealing or, quote, they were asking for it. What do you think about this burden falling on women? And what do you think the roles are of each party here? Yeah, I think that that goes back to toxic masculinity. This idea that men have these natural drives that are uncontrolled and impossible to curtail. So aggression, sexual prowess, and going after what they want. So I think dismantling ideas around toxic masculinity, not saying things like boys will be boys, holding everyone to a higher standard of respect, of consent, of empathy, and of emotional intelligence is a big part of it. And I say everyone because I mean everybody. Everybody should be held to the standards of being responsible for not just how they feel, but also having some semblance of empathy for not wanting to give anybody else a negative experience. So there has definitely been positive movements, I think, towards a world where people are dismantling ideals around toxic masculinity. And as a result, women don't have to feel like I am not only responsible for my own behavior, I am responsible for not inciting negative behavior out of others simply by the way that I'm existing. The future is where we don't have to think that way, but the present is that we still somewhat do. And so employing the buddy system where if you're going out to a party or you're going out in general, people know where you are, what you're doing. And the the two of you have a conversation on the kind of experiences you want to have that night. And so if somebody gets really drunk and they see you getting pulled in a direction that you expressed earlier, you don't want to, they can be an accountability partner for you. I think also too protecting yourself with things that you can walk around with on campus to make sure that you're safe is important. Set yourself up for safety. That, that still holds true. If it hasn't already been clear, Hannah and I love how you champion women having standards, knowing what they want, and not being afraid to get it. I think one fear, at least for me and perhaps many listeners, is what if we don't find someone who meets those standards? And I know women face a lot of pressure too because we have a timer when we're often told to settle because we don't want to live forever alone either. So how do you navigate that? If you live in a city with 40 million people or even 400,000 people and nobody meets your standards, it's you, honey. That's first and foremost. I live in LA and it's so fascinating to me how many people here will easily say there are no good people to date in LA. If you're experiencing that much failure and that much disappointment, change the environment that you're seeking people, reconfigure what your standards are. I really highly suggest people limiting their standards as well too, to three things if you haven't necessarily put the work into educating yourself, into becoming a better flirt, into learning the art of seduction, into learning how to date. Number two, if you got a bit more education, you could pick five things. So that to be said, I would look at what my three to five things are that I'm trying to find in a person. And then sometimes too, it's a matter of doing the math, right? If I live in a town of 10,000 people and on my list of three to five things, I'm looking for somebody who is university educated, who is more spiritual than religious, 
whom has no desires to have kids and has a love for travel and is a high novelty seeker, I've already just like X'd out mathematically a solid 7,500 people in my town. Now I have to consider who's of age, who's available, and who's of the gender that I'm attracted to. And so in the end, I'm left with a pool of five different people. And that's when you made to say, okay, based on how like stringent my standards are, I may have to relocate cities to find the person for me. So those are probably your two options is one, to change your standards or two, to change your location to where your standards are more mathematically likely to come to fruition. Shan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today and leaving us all just more confident about how to navigate relationships during this time. To all our listeners, you do not want to miss more of Shan's wisdom and story times on our YouTube channel and Instagram at Shan Booty. Her book is The Game of Desire, and we'll have it in the show notes as well. Thank you, Shan. Thank you, Hannah Ashton. Thank you, Katie. Well, Hannah, what was your takeaway? Ooh, there are so many. One was, not only is sex education lacking in our young adult lives, but she used the term intimacy education, which is also lacking or mostly non-existent. Yet, when you think about it, relationships are a huge part of our lives. And although we may get lots of career training in college, we equally need guidance and help navigating relationships, dating, and intimacy. And I think that's interesting that it's not really talked about in um, an academic setting. So that is where I'm very thankful that we can look to online creators and men tours until our education hopefully offers this in the future. What about you, Katie? I agree. And for me, this was a great wake up call. I think in high school, I was very idealistic, hopeless romantic because I read too much YA, young adult books. I still do, but I am more in touch with reality now. I think relationships can be beautiful, but sometimes they're overglorified and without intentionality in a relationship, which is what Shan talked a lot about. It can lead to people getting hurt. I'll leave you listeners with this new term my friend tagged me in on a meme. Procolsexual, which is someone who only feels romantic attraction to people they can never be in a relationship with, such as celebrities and fictional characters. Maybe you'll relate too. Yes, definitely DM us. We'd love to hear. <laughs> but thank you guys so much for listening. We are your hosts. I'm Hannah. You can find me at Miss Hannah Ashton on Instagram. And I'm Katie. You can find me at AlohaKDX on Instagram. The Secret Syllabus was created by The Female Quotient in partnership with iHeartMedia and co-produced by The Female Quotient and Wonder Media Network. The FQ is committed to advancing equality and elevating women from college campuses to the corner office. You can find out more at www.thefemalequotient.com. See you guys after class. Bye.